So this is March 3rd, 2012. So all of us would like to have a life that is meaningful. We'd like to do something with our time, with our energy, with our life, that's actually going to be important, that's really going to count. It's often hard to know what that should be. But sometimes, I participated a few times in a little exercise where you imagine that you're at your own funeral, hearing people speak about you. And what would they say? You know, sometimes when our family or friends die and we hear people giving the little summary of their life, right? And I'm sure we wonder, what will people say about me? What will I have contributed? In what way will have I made the world a better place and actually improved my own life? But it's often very hard to know on a day-to-day basis, a minute-to-minute basis, well, what's really important? You know, do I want to do a lot of things, start things, build things, do something big in the world? What does that mean? Make some big business that makes a lot of money, create something that improves people's lives, do a lot of charity work, you know, what is it exactly that really counts? So Krishna explains this very nicely in the 8th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, where he says what really counts in life. And I'm sure that it's a little surprising to most of us. He says, yam yam bhavi smaram bhavam kalevaram tam tam bhavita says the most important thing that you do in life, the real test as to whether or not there's a successful life, is to what extent our consciousness is absorbed in the Supreme, to what extent our consciousness is absorbed in ultimate truth. And the test of that absorption is whether or not that's the one thought we have when we're leaving our bodies, when we're dying when we're going on to the next sphere. And I, I've told this story many times, so perhaps you've heard it before, but when I was a teacher, I took my students on a field trip. Do you all know what a field trip is? You go out of the school. So I forget, actually, what the field trip was about. But on our way back to the school, we saw huge clouds of smoke in the sky, and the whole sky was filled with smoke. And of course the children said, let's go and see what that is. And we went, and it was a whole big apartment building that was on fire, eight stories. And the flames were so large that we couldn't get near it for quite some time until the trucks came, the water. We had to stay quite some distance away. And when we came closer, finally, after the flames had subsided, we saw one young woman, I'm guessing she was in... 20s, maybe early 30s. She was standing outside the burnt building with no shoes on, and next to her were her three young children. And she was saying how that when the fire started, she just grabbed her children and went out of the building. So that's how we know. I mean, we can say what's really important to us in our life, but when there's a crisis, then we grab for what's really important. You know, she didn't go for her money. She didn't even get her shoes. She didn't get her clothes or her photographs or anything. She just took her children. And similarly, when this body is dying, when we have to go to the next body, the next existence, we will, on a subtle platform, try to take with us what's most important. So therefore, death is the test of what actually was our priorities. Whatever we may claim is our priorities in life. So Krishna is telling us two things in this verse. First of all, that our main priority in life is our awareness, our state of consciousness. 
And second of all, the test of what our awareness is, is ultimately at death, and also in this life at our many little deaths. The times in our life when things get shaken, when there is some kind of difficulty, when we feel that our world is falling apart, what do we grab onto? What's our shelter? What's our state of consciousness? So why would Krishna say that our consciousness being absorbed in the truth, and the ultimate truth, is Krishna himself? Why would Krishna say that that is the most important thing to do in life? I mean, from a materialistic point of view, it doesn't seem like that's so important, does it? It seems like what we do is very important. You know, do I prov- am I a good person? Do I provide for my family? Do I take care of my family? Am I nice to my friends? Do I help out people in need? You know, that, that seems to be what's most important, and that's what's really emphasized in the world. But if we look at it very closely, we'll see that those things are very temporary. They're, the good they do doesn't remain. It's not even remembered. How many of you here remember the names of your great-great-grandparents? Anyone remember the names of your great-great-grandparents? What to speak of what they did? I mean, that's our own family. That means that our great-great-grandchildren will not know our names. But to speak of all the very important things that we think that we're doing. Also, we've all had experience that if somebody does something nice for us, but their motives are wrong, if they're doing something nice for us simply to abuse us or exploit us in some way, then it's not really something beneficial. In fact, you don't even want it. Have you had this experience? Somebody wants to give you maybe a lot of money, but there's what we call in America strings attached. Do you understand? There's conditions. Then you don't want it. So the value of what we do is really much more in our motives. That first of all, everything we do is so temporary. I mean, it's, it's so fleeting that in the scope of the universe... It's really meaningless. And the other thing is that the good things we do or the bad things we do, if our motive isn't right, it really doesn't count for much. So what's mostly important is our motive or our consciousness. Of course, if a person has good consciousness, naturally they'll do good things. I mean, naturally. If you're loving, you'll do loving things. It's not that you simply have a state of consciousness. I'm in universal consciousness and you don't act in the world. No. Consciousness is displayed in your actions, certainly. But actions without proper consciousness have very, very little value. Very, very little value. That's as far as the world, but what about as far as us? No, we've all tried to do so many things in this world to become happy, to feel satisfied, to feel that we have some meaning and some significance. And generally we find that they're frustrating. You know, I may achieve something that I wanted, but when I get it, I find that it doesn't give me what I anticipated, at least not for as long or as fully as I had hoped. I mean, a lot of what I want, I never get at all, isn't it? A lot of what I work for, what I strive for, what I sacrifice for, doesn't even happen, isn't it? And then a lot of the things that I sacrifice for and plan for and desire, I get them, and I'm not satisfied with them. And the things that I'm satisfied with, they don't stay. So I find that no matter what I try to do in this world, it doesn't bring me, as an individual, the kind of happiness that I want. So why is it that just the external things, when it comes to society in general, and for me as an individual, really don't have the kind of importance that the modern propaganda says it does? What's wrong? 
I mean, we're being told by our teachers, our politicians, business persons, just do things in the world, be something in the world. But we've just looked at this from the point of view of other people's benefit and the point of view of our benefit, and we find that we don't really get what we are anticipating. Now, why is that? And that's because ultimately we're not part of this world. Krishna says, I'm not a being of this world. Doing things in this world is something like a child playing with toys. You know, they're doing something, but how much value is it? What is the value? I mean, all right, psychologically it helps a child prepare to be an adult. But it's a fantasy. You know, when little children are playing the games, I'll be the king, and you'll be the queen, and you'll be my subjects, and we'll do this. And what meaning does it have? And our acts within the material world, when we're in materialistic consciousness, are similarly an illusion. We're all just pretending. I'm pretending I'm a man or a woman, or I'm American, or I'm Croatian, or I'm Italian. And it's, it's a pretense, it's an act, it's a game. As I go through different lives, as we go on from one life to another, we try on different identities. And we play out different roles. Okay, now I'm a pious Indian businessman. What do I do? Now I'm the head of an African country. What do I do? Now I'm a mother and housewife in Sweden. What do I do? Now I'm a caterpillar. What do I do? But it's all superficial. It has nothing to do with us. Therefore, any acts done in the superficiality, according to this material identity, don't have any real ultimate meaning as far as society nor do they have any real ultimate meaning as far as me. It's very ephemeral. I saw this quite clearly when my mother was dying. She was in a nursing home and I spent the last three weeks of her life being with her. It wasn't a very pleasant place to be. And I remember one of the elderly women who didn't have her family visit her at all when I would walk past her, she would always grab onto me and hold onto me and talk to me as long as possible. And I remember asking her, are you married? She said, I, I was married, I think so. But I think he died. Did he die? When did he die? I can't remember. I said, do you have any children? Yes, I have three. No, two I think I have a son and do I have a daughter? I can't remember. And I met many people like that. And sometimes the nurses told me, oh, this person was a great architect or this person ran a fancy restaurant and they couldn't even remember themselves what they had done. And I remember seeing my mother who at that time had become physically like a little baby. She couldn't even turn over by herself, although mentally she was fine. And my mother had been a very wealthy woman. She had been in charge of some international charities. She was very accomplished, very intelligent, had incredible memory. When she was young, she had won beauty contests and traveled all over the world as a, as a beauty queen. And there it was all gone. You know, she, her body was like a a skeleton with a little, you know, stretched skin on it. Her money was of no value to her. Although she still had her intelligence, she couldn't speak and communicate anything. Uh, she wasn't able to control even her own body, what to speak of a worldwide organization. And all of those things she had done had become meaningless. And I saw that everything in the world, it's like a sandcastle. Maybe you've seen some sand sculptures. Ever seen a sand sculpture? They make these beautiful, beautiful pieces of art out of sand. Or in America at the state fairs, 
they are sometimes make sculptures out of butter. They make these huge cow sculptures out of butter. Or sometimes they make sculptures out of ice. Have you ever seen that? Ice sculptures or snow sculptures. So very beautiful, but what is the meaning? You know, after a while, what do you have left in your hands? So if we want something that's actually meaningful, that's really going to touch us, that's really going to bring us the happiness and satisfaction that we seek, and really do good for the world, then we have to do it on the platform of meaning and reality and eternality. Doing something on an ephemeral, illusory platform satisfies no one. And what is this eternal platform? Thankfully, it's the platform of the self. In other words, it's who I am. I'm actually a factual, I exist. I'm a real being who exists forever and has meaningful, real, eternal activities. The illusion is not all. So there are many philosophies in the world who recognize that this world is an ephemeral, insubstantial illusion. But often they don't know of anything beyond that. Or if they think of something beyond it, it's something very vague. Where there's some light and some being, some just existence. But no, we're actually existing eternally as an individual person with our own form and our own activities, our own personality, and our own unique individual contribution to reality. So if we want to be happy even in this world, if we want to be a success even in this world, we want to do things on that platform, even in this body. I hope you excuse me, I have a little bit of a cold. I don't want to talk. So how do we do that? How do we do things in this world that are on the real spiritual platform? So we're very, very fortunate. This question was asked in the Srimad Bhagavatam by Sukhdeva Goswami to Maharaj Brigitte. He said, how can I touch the eternal How can I touch the real? How can I do something that's substantial if I have this illusory body and this illusory identity? And and Sukadev Goswami replied that although this body is temporary, this world is temporary, it can also be used for spiritual purposes. Something like the government issues money on paper. It's just paper. We throw paper away all the time. But because it's issued by the government, therefore it has value. So although this world is an illusion, because it's created by Krishna, everything is coming from Krishna because he is real, the world can be used for spiritual purposes. So the main way that we engage in spiritualizing our activities and coming to divine consciousness is by meditating on Krishna's name, form, quality, and pastimes and dedicating everything we're doing to him. It's really, in a nutshell, manmana bhagavad bhakto majaji manmasu mame vastasitraivam atmanamadparayamaha to put our mind, our consciousness, on the reality. And then, in that consciousness, dedicate everything to the reality. Now that's a little difficult to do because we're habituated to illusion, but the concept is a very simple concept. The concept, the mechanism, the means is actually extremely easy. It's easy to understand. As I say, it's a little difficult to do because we have a bad habit of doing things from an illusory platform. So in order to do this, in order to put our consciousness in the reality and then dedicate everything to the reality, 
It is essential to spend part of the day doing nothing except training our consciousness to focus on the spiritual. Just like an athlete has to spend a certain amount of time every day training, a musician has to spend a certain amount of every day practicing. To say, well, I'm just going to be in spiritual consciousness and dedicate everything to the Supreme and I'm just going to do it all the time, it probably won't work. There has to be a dedicated amount of time every day when you say, what I'm going to do at this time is only and solely work on my consciousness. Work on what my mentality is. Where is my heart? Where is my intention? Then, holding on to that intention, one can keep that throughout the day and then learn how to dedicate everything to truth. So that's basically the process that we teach in the Hare Krishna movement. Now, of course, for those who are monks and live in a temple, we have a regulated program in the morning from 4.30 till about 8.30 or 9, simply to do that. But we have kirtan, we have japa, we're worshiping the deity, we're reading the scriptures. And people may feel, well, all right, that doesn't really work out in my home. I have to be at work at 8 in the morning, or maybe I have to be at work at 7 in the morning. You know, I really can't just engage in japa and meditation for four or five hours in the morning. But even if it's just one hour in the morning, even if it's just two hours, we say the morning, what's nice about the early morning is the day hasn't rushed in on you yet. You know, once it starts getting to be seven, eight o'clock, there's so much to do. You have to make breakfast and eat breakfast and you have to get the kids ready for school. And you have to go to work and there's so many have-tos that come upon us. And there starts to be a feeling of urgency Part of the reason for that is what's called the modes of material nature. And as the sun rises in the morning, the mode of passion becomes active. The mode of passion has to do with activity, doing basically pious and worthy activities in the world. That's the mode of passion. At night, the mode of ignorance becomes dominant, which is why criminal activities and uh, sinful activities take place in the evening and at night. And early in the morning, the mode of goodness is activated. And there's actually a time in the morning when everything is in balance, when all the modes are in balance. So that's a very ideal time. Just like when you drive on the road, there are certain times that the roads are very congested with traffic, and it's hard to drive, and certain times when the roads are very free. So early in the morning, it's much, much, much easier to put your mind into spiritual consciousness. It can be done, obviously, at any time, and we seek to do it all the time, but it's much easier in the morning. So to take some time every day before you turn on your computer, before you read the newspaper, before you think about what you're going to do at work, before you think about school, before you think about any of the duties and the tasks, first to get my intention right, first to get my consciousness right, because that's the only thing that's really important. And if I've missed that, then I'm left with sand. And that's all. That will be all. Uh, some name in a, in a graveyard. Some name on a family tree. And there'll be nothing else. Whereas if I concentrate on my consciousness, and I bring my consciousness into harmony with the Supreme, with Krishna, then that I keep forever. That goes on with me. And if I have complete consciousness of Krishna, then I don't come back to the cycle of reincarnation. Then I go back to my original form. Then I, I go to my to real life in the real place where I do something that's really meaningful forever. So when we think about all the different things that we have to do and all the different things that we want to accomplish and all the different things that we want to be, 
to first, first, where is my consciousness? What am I thinking about? What are my desires? What are my intentions? What kind of a person am I? And you put some time into that. And you might say, well, Marila, that's lovely, but, you know, I just don't have the time. Then we have to sit and think, what is my time for? What do I want to have? I mean, this is... You know, sometimes, sometimes we get sick and all the things that we need to do and go and be, they can't happen anymore. And then we see that the world goes on. The world hasn't collapsed just because I was sick in bed. And we see very important people in the world, they die, and the world goes on. Even though they're not doing and going and being. It's not that the world collapses. And someday, very soon, sooner than we think, uh, we won't be here in this body anymore to do and to go and to be. And life will go on. A few people will come and cry for a while, and they'll think about us for a while. And everything will go on. So why do we put the temporary and the ephemeral and the illusory in front of the permanent and the real and the satisfying? Who are we benefiting? Anyone else? Ourselves? What is the point? Yes, we have duties to do in this world. We have to eat. Our children have to eat and we need a shelter over our head. Those things are, you know, they have to be done. Although they're illusory, while we're in an illusory world, they have to be done. But not at the expense of something that's actually valuable. So put the valuable first. What's very interesting is that when you put the valuable first, when you put the real thing first, when you concentrate on the most satisfying things first, then we can have the vision to understand what to do with our time and how to do it. Then we can actually make everything spiritual. Even the so-called illusory things become reconnected with the spiritual, as Krishna nicely explains in Bhagavad Gita 4.24. That once we have the proper consciousness, then we see that God is everywhere and in everything. And basically, illusion vanishes. And then, even the things that we do that appear to be the same as that of an illusion person start having permanent spiritual effects. Even very ordinary things like taking a bath or washing our clothes or earning money or cleaning the floor, when our consciousness is right, those things also become transcendental and spiritualized which means that everything in our life then has meaning. So if I'm so busy doing the meaningless things that I never have time for proper consciousness, I'm left with nothing. And if I take the time and I make the sacrifice and I actually absorb my consciousness in Krishna, then everything becomes meaningful. So that is our science that we're teaching in the Hare Krishna movement. And no matter what our lives are, no matter how demanding, no matter what our particular occupation, no matter where we live, it's something that all of us can do. It doesn't take a whole lot of hours, and it doesn't even take a whole lot of energy. In fact, when one makes connecting with Krishna one's priority, then one will have much more energy much more discrimination as to what one should do and what, what one should not do, how to do things. One will have clear vision as to how to organize one's life. All of our questions, should I do this, should I do that, should I have this job, should I go to this school, should I marry this person, should I live here, all of those things are much easier to understand when we first 
clarified our consciousness within. So questions, comments, corrections, arguments, objections. Yes. Sometimes we uh, have um, maybe uh, some specific difficulties in life, uh, and especially some illness or some other difficulties connected with body and with mind and other persons and so on. And in this uh, surrounding uh, around us, uh, do you have any suggestion how to deal with it? How to how to stay in such a higher consciousness? Although we have so so difficult life, maybe. I think that everybody has difficulties like this in their life. You know, some of us in certain areas more than others. Some of us struggle more with our health. Some of us struggle more with our relationships. Some people struggle with financial difficulties. Sometimes people struggle with all of them. In one sense, those things are like little tests like little deaths. You know, something that we're attached to in this world, because at death we give up everything we're attached to, even our body. Not only our body, but all the identity that we've built up, all the relationships that we've put so much energy and thought and caring to, all of the things that we've learned. You know, you give up all of them. And these difficulties in life, they're like taking those things and shaking them, isn't it? They're showing us that this is not something stable that you can depend on. You know, we think that we can depend on our government. We think we can depend... On husband. On husband, yeah. Or the wife, children. I think I can depend on my own mind my memory, my knowledge, my talents. I think I can, certainly, I think I can depend on my body. My body will always be a very obedient servant. And these difficulties are reminding us that these things are all what the Bhagavatam calls fallible soldiers. So when I was a little girl, I had a cousin who liked to play with little toy soldiers whenever I visit their house and play with him. I always play with his little soldiers. So they're toy soldiers. They can't do anything. Or we were, um, where was that place? When you climbed to the tower, John. What place was that? Prague. Ah, in Prague. So there was this tower, and outside the tower, there were these people dressed up like soldiers, like old soldiers from centuries ago. You know, it was really cold that day, and they were wearing metal armor. I thought these guys must have been freezing. But they were not real soldiers. If they were a criminal, they couldn't do anything. They were just in costume. So when these difficulties come, we can remember, oh yeah, these things are not my shelter. You know, my government, my bank account my family, my friends, the company I work for, all of my talents and abilities that allow me to earn my income, my very body. You know, they might not work. They're not my shelter. Who's my shelter? So these things are reminding us that what's real and what's not real, what can I actually depend on? Now usually what happens when we have these problems is we go to Krishna and ask him to fix the, the false shelter. Please fix my body. Please fix my relationships. Maybe he will, maybe he won't. But these are to remind us, among other things. The first thing that we can do is to remember, oh, I have the wrong shelter. Why am I feeling distressed? 
Why does it bother me? Because I had the wrong shelter, because I was attached. I remember once driving down the road and we saw a car accident and there was some woman being put into an ambulance and we just said, oh, very sad. But if that was my mother, I wouldn't just say, oh, very sad. Why do I react differently when it's some stranger and when it's my mother? Because of attachment. Because I'm thinking, oh, that's my mother. And my mother is always going to take care of me. It was quite, uh, quite something for me. Both my parents died. Uh, one year my mother died, next year my father died. I mean, they were very old. But I realized, wow, I always thought my parents would be my shelter. No matter who else rejects me in the world and what happens, I can always go to my mommy and daddy and they'll take care of me. Then they weren't there to go to anymore. So when we see these things, we see how attached we are. We can see, oh, I'm attached to something other than Krishna. I'm attached to something false. Let me fix that. So that should be our first reaction. Our first reaction should be, let me have the right shelter. The reason I'm suffering in this circumstance is not the circumstance, it's my attachment. So many people right now are sick, it's not bothering me. But if I'm, my body's sick, it bothers me. Why? Because I think it's me, I think it's my body. You know, sometimes you read of people who have out-of-body experiences. You ever read about that? People are really sick or they, their body actually dies temporarily. And many of them, you know, they're on the operating table and their heart stops. And when they go above their body, they look down and say, who is that? Boy, he doesn't look like he's doing very well. It's very common, maybe half of the people who report these experiences, they don't even identify that body as themselves. You know, they're in a car accident and they start floating and they say, wow, that lady got really hurt. And then after a while, they go, oh, wait a minute. That's, no, it's not me. Who is that? So that's, you know, why, why are we so affected because I'm thinking this body is the vehicle that's going to fulfill my desires. My wife is going to fulfill my desires. My husband is going to fulfill my desires. My company, my country, my money in the bank. Oh no, if something happens, then I won't get my desires fulfilled anymore. You know, if my husband's in a bad mood or my wife is complaining or... My company is firing people, or my government is shaking. Oh no, how will I get what I need? It will be terrible, I'll die. Nobody will love me anymore. I'll be suffering forever. We're thinking that something is the source of our happiness. It's not the source of our happiness. So that's the main way that we should come to spiritual consciousness. Let me actually invest everything in Krishna. And there's other ways that one can use difficulties to help come to Krishna consciousness. We can ask Krishna what specific things he wants me as an individual to learn. I mean, for everybody, difficulty is a way to remember that my real shelter is Krishna. That's a general lesson, but there's going to be very specific lessons for each of us in our areas of difficulty. And we can ask Krishna, what is it you want me to learn? But you have to ask him like you want to know, not, what do you want me to learn anyway? Just with, with an open heart. And he'll show you, and it will probably be quite different than what you think. And what I see is that once we learn what we need to learn, then the difficulties either disappear, or we no longer experience them as difficult. And I've seen this consistently. That once we learn what we need to learn, either the difficulty's gone, because we don't need it anymore. It was a lesson, and once you learn the lesson, why would you still go through it? Or you just don't see it as difficult. Like once you learn how to drive a car, it's not difficult anymore. When you're learning, you know, you're going to... 
Is that all right? Yes. Uh, can you please uh, tell us uh, something about Srila Prabhupada? Tell you something about Srila Prabhupada? Yes, your guru. You want me to tell you a story? Yes. Is that what you're yes. asking? Yes. Okay, I'll tell you a short one. So, oh goodness, where do I start with this one? So this is in Philadelphia in 1975, and I was getting a Gayatri Mantra, second initiation. So we, had, we were living in New York at the time, and we had gone to Philadelphia for the Rathiyatra to see Shri Prabhupada. So that morning, Prabhupada was giving the initiations, and there was probably, I'm guessing, like 70 or 80 devotees getting initiated. And we had been staying with one family that they lived maybe 15, 20 minute drive from the temple. And the woman, it was Indian family, and the woman for three years had been chanting 16 rounds, following the principles, waking up early, offering arti to her deities, but her husband wasn't a devotee. And so the local temple authorities didn't want to recommend her for initiation. Uh, but she went directly to Srila Prabhupada and she said, would you initiate me? And Prabhupada said, yes. But the temple authorities weren't very happy with that. But I was, I was, I was seeing how Srila Prabhupada wasn't denying this woman just because her husband wasn't a devotee. And there was only room in the temple for the initiates. And at that time Prabhupada was initiating so many people that he had had another devotee pick out the names. So when each person came up, someone else was saying what their new name was. And at least three times Srila Prabhupada corrected it and said, no, it should be this name. And after the third time he said, where are you getting these names? <laughs> I remember with one of them, Prabhupada said, this name you have picked, it means one who carries a heavy load. He said, the name should be Bubrit, which means one who carries the planets on his head. So then, after the, uh, after the initiation, my father and my husband and my son and I went to meet with Srila Prabhupada. And my father bought Srila Prabhupada a fruit basket. And I don't know if you have them here, but you like gifts and you wrap them in colored plastic, right? Okay. So it's big. It's like this big, full of fruits. And my father had specifically ordered it without nuts and without candy. You know, he, he was real proud of that too. He was saying, you know, I made sure that it was only fruit. So he gave it to Shula Prabhupada, and Prabhupada said, oh, so many fruits. And my father said, yes, just fruits. <laughs> and uh, Prabhupada looked at my father. Prabhupada was sitting behind his desk, and he was, he was sitting with a leg, one leg up and, and leaning back, and he was, he was in a very uh, jolly and relaxed Mood and Prabhupada said, So I've seen you before? And my, said, and my father said, Yes, twice before. Once in Chicago, once in New York. And Prabhupada said, Oh, how are you now? And uh, my father said, Oh, I'm doing very well. He said, This is my daughter and my son in law and my sleeping grandson. So my son was maybe seven months old and he was sleeping in my lap. And Prabhupada said, Oh, make him active like you. And uh, my father had gone on Prabhupada's morning walk that morning. And I asked him, I said, what it was like? And my father said, said it was the most wonderful experience of his life. Although he couldn't remember what Shiva Prabhupada said. Anyway, then my father asked Prabhupada, he said, is it possible to be reborn in the same body? <laughs> and what my father meant was he was, my father was experiencing a, a kind of spiritual rebirth in Krishna consciousness. And Prabhupada said, yes. He said, we are actually being reborn at every moment. And he was talking about how we're changing bodies from a child to a, to a youth, to an old man. He said, and now both you and I are old men, so when the body's no longer fit to be changed, then we go on to a new body. And then, uh, then we asked Shri Prabhupada, 
my husband and I, Srila Prabhupada, if we could show our baby pictures of Krishna, even though he sometimes put them on the floor or put them in his mouth, was that offensive? And Prabhupada said, no, not offensive. He said, but it's not so respectful. He said, so better you keep them and show him. And then my, uh, my father gave Srila Prabhupada, we gave Prabhupada some dakshin. And my, and my father gave Srila Prabhupada a check for becoming a life member. So, which was, it was nice that my father gave a check to Srila Prabhupada, but it was, it made it difficult for him to get the books, because life members get all the books, but usually you give your check to a temple, so the temple takes responsibility, and because he gave it to Srila Prabhupada, no particular temple took responsibility. It was a real hassle for me for many years. But anyway, he gave Prabhupada the check for life membership, and then Prabhupada said, oh, good father, good daughter. <laughs> so that was... That was definitely a, a real highlight for me. And then my father had to go back to, to work. And I was waiting to hear Gayatri Mantra from Srila Prabhupada, and our GBC had told us that Prabhupada would tell us Gayatri Mantra personally, just previous to this, Prabhupada had done an initiation in Chicago where there were so many devotees getting initiated that Prabhupada had asked the sannyasis to recite the Gayatri Mantra for the second initiates. So we were going to get Gajra Mantra personally. So this was maybe 10 or 11 in the morning that we were told this. So we, we were waiting, and there wasn't a whole lot of service I could do in the temple with a little baby. So I was just waiting outside. I had my baby like in a back carrier, you know, and I was just chanting. And I don't know how many rounds I chanted. I mean, I was just chanting and chanting and chanting. I'd already changed 16 rounds in the morning, and then from 11 probably till 6, so like 7 more hours. I don't know, I don't know. Just, I'd never chanted quite so many rounds before, but it was just chanting, 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 chanting. And finally, it was really late, that's really like 6 o'clock, and then our GBC saw all of us waiting and said, why are you here? Why haven't you gone back to New York? And we said, well, we're waiting to see Sheila Prabhupada. He said, oh, Prabhupada hasn't seen you yet? We said, no. So he went to where Prabhupada was staying, and Prabhupada didn't know that we were waiting for him. <coughs> so Srila Prabhupada had his bedroom and then like what we call his darshan room. And he had already left his darshan room where he would meet with people, and he'd gone back into his bedroom. But when Prabhupada heard that we had been waiting since like 10, 11 in the morning, he said, okay, bring them in. So we all went up to Prabhupada's darshan, there were nine of us. And I was the only woman getting second initiated again. And in those days in Iskand, how do we put this? It was not very... Um, anyway, so I was going to be the last one. Even though I had a little baby. You know, you'd think that if you have a little baby, you should go first, so then you could leave. But instead, I had to go last. And one of the sannyasis said to me, if your baby makes any noise, you'll have to leave. So, of course, babies make noise. It's their dharma. That's what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to run around and make noise and cause trouble and be dirty. And if they don't do that, they're not babies. So, you know, I'm like, what am I supposed to do? You know, my baby's going to make noise. Anyway, one, one of the devotees, he went in to see Srila Prabhupada, and when he came out, he was just shaking like this. The devotee said, what's the matter? And he said, Prabhupada, will you tell me the mantra? I said, why not? He said, because I couldn't count. Because <laughs> he was so nervous. So some of the older devotees had to work with him for maybe 20 minutes. He's going, one, two, <laughs> three. And finally he learned how to count to 10 on his fingers. And he went back in and Prabhupada told him the mantra. So then, as I said, we were the last ones to go in. And we, when we went in, my husband was carrying our son, and, uh, who was awake now, and he was, he was laughing, and Prabhupada, just, his face just lit up, and he said, he said, oh, he is very fortunate, and I thought, yeah, he's getting to hear Gayatri Mantra from Srila Prabhupada, <laughs> and then, uh, then Prabhupada went like this to him, and he said, oh, he's laughing, he said, he's very intelligent, actually, he is very intelligent, and, uh, then I sat down next to Srila Prabhupada and I was thinking, I was thinking that I was supposed to be really humble. This is so embarrassing. 
I was thinking, you know, I'm supposed to be really, really humble, so when Prabhupada teaches me the mantra, if I get it right the first time, then he'll think that I'm very proud. So I purposely messed up in my repeating. And Prabhupada just got this kind of disgusted look on his face, and I thought, oh, I guess I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> I felt really stupid. Then I actually felt humble. <laughs> and uh, I had been in a situation, you know, we, it was, this was a time in this kind of where Prabhupada was really pushing, you know, distribute books and double book distribution and double, you know, children are fine, Prabhu, they're welcome. It's okay. It's okay. Sorry. You know, 50 years from now, that may be me running around. It's okay. As long as they don't, you know, like scream or something. They're allowed to be friendly and curious. It's okay. So, at that time, Prabhupada was really pushing, you know, double book distribution, double book distribution. Everybody was pushing like that. So there were a lot of people telling me, well, just, you know, leave your child with anyone and go out and distribute books. Doesn't matter. Just leave your child at home. And then there were other people saying to me, listen, now that you're a mother, that's your only duty and you shouldn't do anything else. And, you know, just stay home with your child. So I was kind of confused because I was getting these two opposite instructions. And as you can see, I like to preach. So, I mean, I wanted to go out and preach. But I, I wanted to take care of my child. So I asked you with Prabhupada, I said, Prabhupada, I, I want to preach and I want to please you, but it's very difficult with the child. And Prabhupada said, well, you must take care so you may not go out. And I thought, such a common sense answer. <laughs> he didn't say, you know, you can't go out. He didn't say you have to go out. He didn't say you, you can't go out. Uh, about a week later, we started taking our, our baby out with us on book distribution. So it's one of my stories. I could tell you some more stories maybe on my next visit. <laughs> so any other questions at all? I could take maybe one or two more. Yes? What do you think, what do you think about uh, uh, today's leadership of, of, of these countries? What do I think of today's leadership of this country? Oh my goodness. How many leaders are there in ISKCON? There must be, you know, like 800. The Swamis. I, I, I think there's probably about 100 Swamis. And the, the Swamis in ISKCON are, the, are, well, some of them are just the spiritual leaders, they're not the positional leaders. I, I like to look at people individually, and I don't think I'd want to talk about individuals from here. I'll tell you, I think the leadership of ISKCON is actually right there on the altar. That's where I think the leadership of ISKCON is. And what do I think of him? I think he's great. I think he knows what he's doing. He's got a plan. That his movement is going to take over the whole world and usher in a golden age. And who he's going to use to do that and how he's going to do that, I don't know. And I don't have to know. I'm just a little soldier. I'm not one of the generals. Also, one thing I've discovered is that who the leaders are is not so easy to tell. They don't always have titles. Some people with titles are not the real leaders, and some of the real leaders don't have titles. Of course, some of the people with titles are also real leaders. Is that all right? Otherwise, that was too, you know, I'm going to answer that question. What do I think of the president? Could it be, could it be like, maybe, more leaders with more leaders in some specific places or something, you know? Do we need more leaders? We, yeah, we need a lot more leaders. How are we going to go in every town and village? you want to become one? <laughs> well, there you go. Prabhupada would often say, all of you should become leaders. That's the idea. But there's many ways to be a leader. 
But I, I would say, from my own, you asked me my opinion, my opinion is that some of the most important and significant leaders in Mahaprabhu's movement are not very well known, and they don't have any title. I see Mahaprabhu's movement spread to every town and village. Sometimes because of the good things that we do, and sometimes because of the wrong things that we do. It's interesting. Sometimes even when we mess up, still Mahaprabhu uses that as a way to spread his movement to every town and village. He's really clever about it. Like some leader will do something foolish and a whole temple will close and then all the devotees scatter and they scatter to 20 different places and start 20 different preaching programs. Whereas if everything had gone on nicely, they'd all stay in one area. You know, it's kind of interesting. Yes. That was a really short question you asked me before. <laughs> okay. Who's stopping you? Then? Oh, wait, you know, what? I'll tell you where I've come to. By, by the way, I don't, nobody introduced me, but I teach ISKCON history and ISKCON sociology at Bhaktivedanta College. Um, I, I can just tell you where I, where I like to be for myself, so I'm happy. Okay, because I want to be happy. That sound like a good idea? Everybody like to be happy? So I can tell you what I do, and if that works for you, fine. If it doesn't work for you, that's also fine. All right? So you know that uh, during World War II, so Europe was in the grip of the Axis powers, and things looked pretty bad. Right? You know your history? Okay. So the Allies decided that they were going to invade Europe. And they amassed their troops. They amassed their troops in Britain for an attack across the Channel at Normandy. And they wanted to fool the Nazis that they were going to attack at the Pas de Calais, which is the shortest place of the channel. So they created um, false ships and false messages. I mean, it was a whole thing. They, they really tried to make the move successful. And of course, it was successful, and eventually they were able to overthrow the Axis powers. But it was really interesting that the generals leading the attack, they said that we knew that 70% of the soldiers involved in the attack would most likely die. They knew that. But that doesn't mean that everybody isn't valuable and everybody has their place. You know, when they, when they actually attacked the beaches on Normandy, some of the soldiers were shot in the big boats, some of them were shot when they got from the big boats to the little boats, some of them were shot in the little boats, some of them were shot when they went from the little boats to the shore. Some of them were shot on the shore. Some of them actually got up on the beach and knocked out the guns, the big cannons, and established a beachhead. So each of us has our little part to play. Mahaprabhu's movement is going to take over the world. And each of us has our part to play. So those guys who got shot in the boat, in the little boats, they didn't get to see that the battle was won, what to speak of the war won. They went on to their next body. And we don't, we don't see the big picture. We just can't. We're too small. 
I mean, Mahaprabhu doesn't discuss his overall world strategy with me anyway. Maybe he does with you, but he doesn't do that with me. He doesn't sit me down and say, okay, Arula, you're one of my top generals. Let's go over our strategy for the next thousand years. <laughs> or the next 20 years. I mean, one, one devotee who works with the GBC said to me, Ermila, I want you to write a job description for the GBC that people will still be praising 300 years from now. I said, Prabhu, that's absurd. I said, this kind has changed so much in 30 years, in the last 30 years. How much is it going to change in the next 300 years? How could I possibly write a job description that's going to be good for 300 years? So I just do my little part. That's all. And what's my little part? My little part is how I'm inspired. Do what you're inspired to do. And we don't have to convince everybody else to do what we're inspired to do. In fact, that would be counterproductive. We don't want everybody doing the same thing. Some people have to go by boat, some people by plane, some people parachute. Some people are going by submarine. You know, people, whatever they're... And, and I used to be like this too, so I'm not, I can't say anything about anybody else. But, you know, we tend to think that whatever I'm really excited about is the most important for everybody. So I probably said Gurukul is our most important project, and that's what I worked on most of my life in the Hare Krishna movement. And some people, they're going to put all their energy into taking care of the cows. And some people are going to put their energy into book distribution. And some people are going to put their energy into deity worship. There's this wonderful quote from Srila Prabhupada. I was just reading the most wonderful quote. I love these kind of quotes where Prabhupada said that we should encourage everyone to do what they like for Krishna. So if there's some aspect of Mahaprabhu's movement that gets you on fire, please do it. And inspire others to do it without taking away whatever inspiration they have. So a really nice example of community building and book distribution is going on right now in California under Vaishya Sikha Prabhu. So if you'd like to see how, how book distribution and community building can go together, he's the Acharya. What's his name? Vaishya Sikha. I mean, he's engaging, you know, people living on their, in their own houses, doing an incredible amount of book distribution. And he does a lot of book distribution in very novel ways. It's not just going out to the airports and going to the stores and things, which is pretty hard for most people. So I would look at things like that. But it's not an either-or. It's not, okay, we're emphasizing community development to the detriment of book distribution or this or that. Of course, we have to build communities. It's the International Society for Krishna Consciousness. And so far, we've had a lot of international Krishna consciousness, but we haven't had a whole lot of international society for Krishna consciousness. We've been really low on the society level. And we've got to do that. Otherwise, you distribute the books, and people read the books, and they come and say, where is it? And we say, oh, it's just in the books. <laughs> you know. Okay. But that's, you know, we're, we're coming up to the 50th anniversary of the incorporation of ISKCON. And one of the things that I like to say is, let's put the S in ISKCON. So everything has to go on. We have to grow our own, you know, fruits and vegetables and grains, we have to have our own cows and train oxen, we have to have first class deity worship we have to distribute Prabhupada's books we have to do Harinam Sankirtan I mean we, we can have a whole argument that this is Mahaprabhu's Sankirtan movement and the only thing that all of us should be doing is doing Sankirtan so in whatever way we're inspired, if you're inspired to do some kirtan, to have kirtans every day for three, four hours, do it. If you're inspired to work on book distribution, do it. If you're inspired to build community, do it. If you're inspired in three or four areas, do it. And inspire others without decreasing their own energy. And all of it's needed. Mahaprabhu is inspiring each of us in different ways to contribute our own talent. Prabhupada said everyone has some extraordinary talent. And using our extraordinary talent for Krishna means successful life. So see what inspires you. 
Which of Srila Prabhupada's instructions, which of the needs of the world? Yes, yes, we've got to do that. And do it. And by the way, something different may inspire you 20 years from now. You know, so my main inspiration was Gurukula for like 30 years. And now I'm much more inspired by organizational development and community building. I'm starting to look more at those sort of things myself. I hope that's all right. That way you can be inspired and part of the group without envy and criticism and all that kind of thing. But anyway, if we want to build community, our main way, or if we want to distribute books, or if we want to do our young psychotone, the main thing is to get back to what I was talking to tonight. Put Krishna first. First get your consciousness in order. Then you can see clearly what to do. Then you can see clearly, who am I? What are my talents? How do I fit into Mahaprabhu's movement? What's my place? How can I actually... Then you'll be able to inspire others. Is that all right? Oh, thank you. Okay, should we end here? Thank you very much. All praise to Shiva Prabhupada. Thank <laughs> you.